This is Ben Weingarten for Encounter Books. The audio you're about to hear comes from an in-depth interview I conducted as part of Encounter Books' new Close Encounters video series, which I encourage you to check out on YouTube. The interview with Rupert Darwall concerns his new book, Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. What follows is our conversation. Rupert, in Green Tyranny, you write, and I'll quote here, Virtually all the themes of the modern environmental movement are prefigured, unquote, in the Nazis' support of wind power in the 1930s. Explain this. Yeah, if you look at what the Nazis were doing in the 1930s and their environmental policies, virtually every theme you see in the modern environmental movement, the Nazis were doing. So it happens to be a historical fact that the Nazis were the first political party in the world to have a wind power program. It also happens to be a fact that they were against meat-eating and they considered that it was terribly wasteful that so much grain went, went to feed livestock rather than to make bread. It's also the case that they, were, they had the equivalent of fuel economy rules because they had the most expensive gasoline in, in Europe and so they basically had very few people driving cars. So virtually everything that you see, I think actually the most, the most extraordinary thing that I came across was this quote from Adolf Hitler where he told an aide once, I'm not interested in politics, I'm interested in changing people's lifestyles. Well that could be, that's extraordinarily contemporary. That is what the modern environmental movement is all about. It's about changing people's lifestyles. And the subtitle of your book is Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. So you have Nazi practices that are focused on environmentalism, and you explore how the socialists have thrown in over time with those former Nazis. Explain the link between Nazism and communism and the trajectory from that union to today's climate movement. Yeah, it's... It's really embedded in German history, in post-war German history, because in the first 30 years after 1945, Germany, West Germany that is, was a model Western democracy. There's uh, uh, a left-wing writer I quote in the book who, said, who complains that the SPD, the left of centre party, the equivalent of the Democrats, gave up the class war and embraced the American way of life. And Germany was like America, it embedded in Europe. That began to change in the 1970s. There is no other country in Western Europe and, and, and America that had such an influx of far-left radicals, the new left, the Frankfurt School, rising to power uh, in, through the, through the eight, 1980s and 1990s. And what is very significant is how the new left, these extremist radicals, embraced uh, the environmental positions of the Nazis. Explain sort of the twisted and perverse logic that takes us from anti-capitalism to environmentalism. Where do those views intersect? Well, Ben, you, you absolutely you put, put your finger on it. It's anti-capitalism is, is the, the uniting thing, anti the freedom of the individual. And whether you care to call it extreme left or extreme right, those are the things that unite those ideologies. Now, with with if you like the extreme right, their basic categories are to do with biology and, and, and race. And with the extreme left, it used to be class. But what you had is the extreme left gave, gave up on the working class. When the working class didn't revolt, as, the, as Marx and Engels predicted, they essentially gave up on rationality and they gave up on the working class. And they said the working class 
have been bewitched by consumerism uh, and so forth. And so they therefore bought into the irrational politics of what had been, if you like, the far right. So that's another kind of way that the left twist, the far left twisted itself into positions you see, the anti-rational, the nihilistic positions of the, of the Nazis. And, and it's fascinating. In your book, you walk through various ideologies and show them building a coalition around several factors, anti-capitalism in and of yeah. itself, you have the environmentalism and the anti-war movement as well. And yet when we talk about climate change, we're theoretically talking about science, not political ideology. Isn't that a critical point in and of itself? The thing to understand, and the thing I learned, in fact, in writing this book, is you have to look at what people actually do rather than what they say. So with climate change, we're meant to have wind and solar. But when Germans are given a choice, whether they want to have whether they want to cut carbon emissions or what, whether they want to close down nuclear power, they choose to cl close down nuclear power. And of all the countries in Western Europe, Germany has had this tradition of being most hostile to nuclear power. So the, the peace movement in, of the 1970s actually arose from... It, it began with an anti-nuclear power, civil nuclear power protest. And it very quickly morphed into anti you know, when Reagan and the arms build up and so forth, the Pershings and the cruise missiles, it turned from anti-civil nuclear power to anti-the the Western arms build up in response to the Soviet SS-20s. So all these things, things come together. But as I put it in the book, global warming is a pretext for a radical environmental agenda. It is not the primary cause that they're seeking to do. You have to look for that elsewhere. And, and you write, and this is so pertinent, Quote, the greening of Europe was the price the West paid for winning the Cold War, unquote. Would it be fair to say that the environmentalist movement today is, in effect, another phase of the Cold War? West Germany was the linchpin of the Atlantic Alliance in, in, in Europe. The Kremlin decided to put in those SS-20s and it threatened to cut the, the Atlantic Alliance in two because... These missiles could hit Europe, but they couldn't hit the United States. So there was a big asymmetry. And it was Helmut Schmidt, the SPD West German leader, who first raised the uh, concern about this when he said, this threatens the future of the Atlantic Alliance. We, NATO must uh, rebalance. And so you had a German leader saying, we need to put these um, medium-range nuclear missiles into West Germany. Now that provoked a tremendous backlash in West Germany, which the far left exploited and which the Soviet Union exploited. And that, it led to, it really completely destabilised German politics. It's t it took it to the left and the SPD have really never recovered from that. It led to the ri rise of the Greens and the, and the, the, the Greens founded in 1980, became, very quickly became the peace movement. And we said that a huge proportion of people in the peace movement were also Greens. So all these strands came together. Now the interesting thing is when you look at the Cold War is won at the, the end of the 1980s, who are the people who came out on top? Well, it's people like the Greens. And there's the famous phrase that one of them said, talked about the long march through the institutions. That is what they did. And they ended up in 1998 with the first red-green uh, coalition in Berlin. 
they walked, they, they, took all, they took over all the institutions and then they, they took over the federal government in the, in the, in the Red-Green Coalition. Now, the German influence is critical to your book, but you also emphasize the influence of Sweden. Now, we in the West don't traditionally think of Sweden as a dominant power, yet you emphasize that they are critical when it comes to environmentalism, and you also focus on the figure and impact in particular of Olaf Palma. Walk us through Sweden's soft power when it comes to the environment. Yeah, when we're talking about exposing the roots of total the totalitarian roots of this, the, the German, the Nazi one is, if you like, sort of pre-explains itself. What about Sweden? Is Sweden totalitarian? Well, it's a form of soft totalitarianism. They've had a social democratic government. Uh, it was the longest one-party rule from about the 1920s into the 1970s. So extraordinary, uh, extraordinary impact on Sweden. Uh, th this is the party that created modern Sweden. The Sw Swedish Social Democrats can claim direct lineal descent from Marx and Engels. And they believe in social engineering. Deep, they, they have socially engineered modern Sweden. And they use, the, they use tools of social control to, to change the way people think, to change the way people behave. There's a quote in the book from Olaf Palmer when he was education minister saying, we don't teach people individuality, we teach them to be members of a group. And then there's an education bureaucrat who says, we, give we believe in the freedom to give up freedom. So this is, it's not like the, the regimes of the former Eastern Bloc, but it's a very, it's, it's I think rightly called a soft totalitarian um, regime. Now you said the impact of, of Sweden on environmental politics. Enormously underestimated. This country of 12 million people, it kicked off the modern environmental, at a global level, not Rachel Carson and, and, and Earth Day, but the, the global politics of the environment were started by Sweden. They called for the first UN environment conference in, in 1972 in Stockholm, which started the string of UN climate conferences going through Rio, um, Kyoto, Paris and so forth. Um, they also put acid rain on the, on the world. They launched the war on coal. First of all, with acid rain, they wanted to have a huge nuclear power program and they wanted to raise the spectre of coal. As If you don't have nukes, you have to have coal and coal is dirty and it destroys the forests and lakes and, by the way, it causes climate change. And so Sweden was the first country to talk about climate change. Olaf Palmer was talking about climate change. Um, in 1974, in November 1974, that's when Al Gore was still at law school. This way predates anyone else uh, on climate change. You characterize the acid rain movement as being the dry run, in effect, for today's global warming and climate change movement. Now, what are the implications of the history of acid rain? I don't, the, the acid rain history uh, is not well known and it needs to be told. It is a genuine scientific scandal. You have, there, there are very interesting parallels with, with global warming. The acid rain and global warming were both used as, as by, by the Swedes as, as on the, for the war on coal. They were both involved, many of the same people. The first uh, chair of the IPCC happened to, he was a Swede, he was close to Al Olaf Palmer and he wrote the first government report on acid rain. The national scientific academies around uh, in North America and in Western Europe all said 
the science of acid rain is more certain than any other form of, more certain than climate change. And the interesting thing is, they it turned out to be wrong. It wasn't, the, um, soils and forests and lakes and streams weren't being acidified by acid rain caused by uh, power station emissions, it was to do with changes in land use. So if you take the Adirondacks, for example, what had happened there was that uh, in the late 19th century, 20, early 20th century, the lumber industry was, came along, it cut a lot of trees, it burnt the stumps, and that changed the soil from a, being a very acidic soil where the lakes were acidified. It changed them, it reduced the acidity. So you had game fish, you had salmon, so when uh, McKinley was assassinated, Theodore Roosevelt was actually in a uh, on a fishing holiday up there, you could catch fish. Then the conservationists came in and said, you've got to leave those trees, the soil reacidified. So the, the actual science was about the acidification being caused by, by soil creation and changes in, in land use. Now that was the truth of this, became known just as the Clean Air Act amendments were being passed by the Congress in, in the US. And what's really interesting, here's the real scandal, is the science was known to be untrue by the EPA as these anti-acid rain laws were being passed and the EPA suppressed the science. They then uh, quite disgracefully blackened the name of the leading scientist who developed this uh, critique. Uh, they accused him of not being a proper scientist. Uh, they backed down when he threatened to, to libel them, said he'd take them to court. They FedExed an apology to him. Um, and they, then they then further lied when they said, well, actually, he might have got the science wrong, but we disagreed with his conclusions. That was wrong in private. They actually agreed with his conclusions. And yet, to this day, you go to the EPA website, they say, acid rain causes lakes to acidify. Is climate change a fraud? I think I wouldn't use the word fraud. What my criticism is to do is twofold. First of all, it was politicized right from the word go, as is very clear from the book. Uh, global warming was used, it was kind of created, the science of it was unearthed for political reasons. Secondly, is the way that the science has been presented, and the science has been presented in a systematically biased way. There is not criticism of the uncertainties, of the assumptions, of the leaps of faith involved, so one's getting a very one-sided view of the science, and that is bad science. The lack of op openness to criticism, the fact that people who question um, the things that the forecasts and so forth are delegitimized and told that they're climate deniers is fundamentally anti-scientific. So I wouldn't use the word fraud. My criticisms would be, first of all, it has always been political. It has always been, it has been developed with a political purpose. And secondly, is the way that the science has been presented. And in the chapters on the creation of the IPCC, that is very clear, that they had to, the policies they wanted needed to show that there would be a ca catastrophe, what they call a transformation, some kind of uh, ecological transformation to justify emissions cuts. So they back-engineered from that conclusion to the science and so forth. Now, the, the theory of climate change, as it's popularly held, goes something like this. The climate is changing. We as human beings are contributing to this change, potentially with temperatures rising. And we have to curb that activity in order to counter all of these potentially 
catastrophic effects, ultimately culminating in the mass redistribution of wealth from the first world to the rest of the world. How did that come to be, the prevailing opinion held by the elites in academia, pop culture, and media, and do you attribute it to the efforts of the climate industrial complex, as you term it? When we're talking about the climate industrial complex, you are talking about, first of all, you're talking about multi-billion American foundations. We're talking about uh, the Rockefeller, various Rockefeller funds. Uh, You're talking about Pew, MacArthur. These huge, huge uh, foundations who've been funding some of this stuff really since, well, the Rockefeller Foundation's been funding the Frankfurt School when the Frankfurt School, these far leftist post-Marxist academics from Germany uh, fled Nazi Germany. They came to America. Uh, some, they were fi- part of their time here was financed by these foundations. Their return was financed by, the, uh, by one of the Rockefeller f- uh, foundations. They've been in this game for a very long time. And in addition to which, you then have all the climate scientists uh, and the billions of dollars of climate funding research. Um, they depend on that stream. They've got to keep this going to keep the, keep the, keep the grants coming. And then you've got the uh, you've got the you've got the wind and solar, and that is not that's not billions. That's hundreds of billions. It's it, it's enormous. And then out in front of those, you've got what I call the shock troops of the climate industrial complex, the NGOs, not just the people like the World Resources Institute. If you like, they're the more respectable kind of intellectual end of it. But you've got, the shot, you've got the people who go out there like uh, Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth, the Bill McKibbins of this world. And again, when you, look, when you look where they get their money, it comes a lot from these large foundations, West Coast foundations, and it comes from Silicon Valley billionaires. So we are talking about something that is very large, very powerful, and extremely well financed. This climate industrial complex has pushed green energy policies throughout Europe. What's been the impact? Well, the, the actual impact has been a huge increase in uh, energy costs. And uh, there's, there's a, a chart in there, which is, is, I call it the hockey stick, the uh, renewable hockey stick, because it shows that once you go up above a certain level, basically uh, energy prices, energy costs just go up and up and up. So if you're looking, about, if you're looking at the German and, and Danes, they're paying around 30 euro cents, which is more or less the same as US cents, per kilowatt hour, whereas in the US you're paying around 10 to 12 US cents per kilowatt hour. Um, when the German, the, the German Green Energy Minister said that they were going to have the energy vendor, the transition to wind and solar, he said it would cost no more than the equivalent of a scoop of ice cream on your monthly electricity bill. That scoop of ice cream has turned out to, to cost 1 trillion euros uh, to the 2030s. It is the most expensive scoop of ice cream you'll ever see. Another expensive scoop of ice cream comes in the form of the Paris Climate Accord. You write that the argument over the accord is a, quote, fight for America's soul. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, it, it is for two reasons. The first reason is that to get the Paris Agreement done and to have it implemented, required Barack Obama essentially to sub- subvert the, certainly the spirit of the United States Constitution. 
The Paris Agreement is a treaty which didn't go to the Senate, so it was constructed in a way so ostensibly it didn't need to go to the Senate. Similarly, the Clean Power Plan is, uh, was constructed by the EPA. Uh, it, didn't go, it, it didn't touch uh, either House of Congress. Whereas when they were dealing with acid rain, uh, the Clean Air Act amendments, they, they, were, they passed uh, through both Houses of Congress. So something like acid rain was dealt with properly, you know, in a legislative way, whereas with uh, carbon dioxide and global warming, which is a much, economically, a much, much bigger deal, Congress, uh, uh, Congress was ignored. So that's, that's the first thing. But the, the second thing is to do with the way the climate industrial complex behaves and how they seek to win the argument, and that is to close down debate. It is to delegitimise dissent. It is to cow people into silence. And the penultimate um, chapter in the book is called The Spiral of Silence, which is this notion that when people don't hear arguments in the public square, they cease making those arguments themselves. They stop even knowing what they believe. And after a while, they don't even know what they believe. So you can just, you can suppress debate you can suppress the arguments, not by having an argument, but just making sure you don't have an argument. And I think that is ultimately the United States Constitution depends on the First Amendment, the right to free speech. But that's a formality. The real thing is the essence of being able to, to speak freely. And that is what is at risk. And I think there's a further dimension to it. In the, the way I see this is that this is about trying to make America more like Europe. Europe is a continent of lassitude. It's a continent in decline. It's a continent where, where we believe energy needs to be rationed. It needs to be, we need to preserve things. America is about dynamism. It's about a better future. And that better future, there's nothing that shows that better future than the fracking revolution. It is the most extraordinary thing to have happened on the, in energy for decades because we were told the oil was running out. We'd reached peak oil. There was, you know production was going to diminish, diminish. This oil was always there, but until fracking, the horizontal fracturing came along, it couldn't, be, it couldn't be commercial. And look what's happened. It is transformed. There is energy abundance. And America at its best is a country of abundance. And what the environmentalists are saying is, no, you can't have it. You have to leave it in the ground. You have to be poor. You have to, you have to, your tomorrows will be less rich than your today's. That, to me, is fundamentally anti-American. And relating to that point is the deeply held American belief in and tradition of free market capitalism as essential to leveraging finite resources and creating abundance out of them. There's a quote in your book that I'd like you to elaborate on that ties into this point. You write, and I quote here, climate change is ethics for the wealthy. It legitimizes great accumulations of wealth. Pledging to combat it immunizes climate-friendly corporate leaders and billionaires from being targeted as members of the top one-tenth of the top one percent. This signifies a profound shift in the nature and morality of capitalism, unquote. Elaborate on that for us. Yeah, to take the last point, Adam Smith said it isn't through the charity of the baker or whatever that the bread is because, because of their self-interest. that. Uh, in a capitalist market society, people do things for each other because not, not out of, because of good feelings, but because it's in their self-interest to do it. So when you have capitalists saying, uh, I'm going to do something that even if it, it, it costs me 
it costs me, that raises a question mark. So why are the Silicon Valley billionaires behind uh, green energy when we know green energy costs a lot? Well, they're fabulously rich, aren't they? I mean, they, they, are, they are unbelievably rich and they are incredibly powerful. How to defend that wealth from predators? Well, you're going to say, we're, we're in the business of saving the planet. We're fighting the, these evil capitalists who are destroying the planet, making uh, the air you and your grandchildren are going to breathe. Uh, we fight these people. We're on the side of, of good and saving the planet. So I think, this is, I, I think a big part of the motivation is simply preservation of, of their wealth and preservation of, of the power they've accreted. Yeah, when faced with the political situation in which we find ourselves today, where there's a prevailing ethos, again, among the elites in academia, government, and culture on climate change, and they're perpetuating and propagating uh, that perspective perpetually, what are the Achilles heels that can be targeted to compete in this battle of ideas? Well, the big cost to that and the parties of the left is the parties of the left were meant to be the champions of, of working people. They were meant to say, the interests of the working class, we represent the interests of working people, they're the interests we're going to uphold. What's actually happened is they've sold out to the green billionaires. The green billionaires have bought the Democratic Party, so there's a big, there's a big uh, divergence between where the money is, where the leadership is, where the politicians are, where the elites are, and the Democrats' base. And that is the big opportunity. That's the big political opportunity. The, the, the economic one is simply this stuff is very expensive. Renewables is incredibly expensive. Do people want to pay more on, for electricity or less? Clearly they want to pay less. So any political party worth its choice, worth its name, can go after this. The left is there sitting, to, waiting to be absolutely destroyed because they have sold themselves out to environmentalists who do not have the interests of working people at heart. In fact, uh, there's a strategy that they actually despise working people. They despise their taste, they despise uh, their desire for a better life, they despise their desire for consumption. Rupert, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us for this second episode of Encounter Books' Close Encounters. We've been discussing Rupert Darwall's newest book, Green Tyranny, Exposing the Totalitarian Roots of the Climate Industrial Complex. It's available today everywhere books are sold. For more from Encounter Books, visit us at EncounterBooks.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Intro and outro courtesy of Kurt Vile's Freeway.